and she had a chuk underneath and, and her arm alive hen. And I, I, you know, I was mesmerized and I was dumbfounded. I didn't know, couldn't find words actually and interpreted it. So what are you doing? And she, and she said, um, well, I came back all the way because thank you very much. You saved my life. Welcome to episode 21 of the Ops and Ghani Quick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back to the, the podcast. Today I've got a, um, a guest, um, uh, Vinan Breitenbach, who's a um, GP anaesthetist, but also um, has worked uh, in a, as an obstetrician. Um, and currently, where, where are you working currently? In Narogen. In Narogen. Yep, so I thought I'd get him on the show today because um, a couple of years ago I was working with him at Osborne Park Hospital and he told me this amazing story from um, her, um, his career, earlier in his career back in um, South Africa, which, I th- which was fascinating and I thought it would be great to capture on, uh, on mic. So, but before we get into that, I thought I might um, ask Yvonne to um, perhaps just let everyone know, uh, all the listeners here, know... Um, where you've come from and where you're trained and what your background is, if that's okay. Sure, thank you, Roger, and thank you for asking me. Uh, I graduated from the University of the Free State in Bloemfontein, South Africa, in 1983. I did my internship the year after in a hospital called Laratong, which is on the western side of Soweto in Johannesburg, Baragwana, the very famous one on the eastern side. Uh, and then uh, in South Africa at the time, we had um, conscription army uh, training or service we had to do. It was in the time when things were bad in South Africa, in the factions between the government and the, and the, and the, and the ANC. Um, and there was a war situation going on in a country which is currently known as Namibia, it used to be called South Africa at the time. Um, and you had an option, you could go to the army after school or if you studied the professional uh, course or tradesmanship, you could deliver your service after. It was two year compulsory. So I decided to go to uni first and then um, I knew I was going to work in a hospital as a JMO or SMO after my intern year and I thought I can combine the two at the time. And that's basically uh, how it worked out. So I, I spent my intern year, then went to the army, spent two years in the army and I spent the bulk of that, all that time in, uh, in Namibia. Uh, one, the first year of that was on the border between uh, Namibia and Angola, which was a war zone at the time. Um, and I, but I worked there as, a, as an army doctor in a civilian hospital uh, in northern, Ango- uh, northern Namibia. We did a, the ethnic group there is called the Vambus. They're about half the population of Namibia. Big country with a small population. We had one million people at the time. Half a million were Vambus. Yep. And, they all, and they were all sort of, uh, uh, they all lived in the northern corridor, which is about a 200 kilometer strip on the border and the, uh, from north to south and about a thousand kilometer east to west. It was a no-go zone uh, because it was, like I said, a bit of a wartime, curfews at night and so on. And uh, the hospital was a 400-bed hospital, manned by about 20 doctors, um, of which uh, 12 was usually army uh, army conscripts. Um, worked there for, then went to, uh, down to Vintuk again, did some stints in obstetrics and anesthetics, orthopedic surgery, um, and then the, yeah, emergency medicine and followed my passion of becoming procedural GP, which I did 11 years for South Africa, doing obstetrics, anesthetics, and GP practice. And then um, 
11 years into that, um, my wife and I always, when we met, said after uni we would like to go and work overseas and just for the, for figure out is what the experience is like, never got that far. And then in uh, 1998, I, I made up mine, actually came two years prior to a classmate of mine, um, moved to Perth, he was recruited as a psychiatrist, and when he came back to say hello, he said, why do you come and work in Australia? No, I can't. Uh, we made contacts, we came came for a year just on a, on a working holiday, my wife and I. The kids were at a stage we thought we can take them out of school for a short while, it would make too much difference. And four months into that we decided we're not going back, so we're still here. And then mm. So many years later, came into uh, 1998 to Australia and 2003 I moved from the old wall in here, it was a one-horse town because they posted yep. where they want doctors, moved to Narragin and they're still, still there. Mm. All right, and so um, so the story that I'm going to ask you about. So, what year um, of your career was that? Was that yeah, yeah. You, had you done obstetrics and uh, was it? Was I, I've it? done obstetrics yet, but South Africa, of course, the training is focused in a completely different sort of way. At the yep. time, we were trained to be sort of a, a proceduralist and multi-skilled, and especially going to work in the country. Uh, yeah, massive workload, as you know. Um, just said to a student the other day, yeah, you know, in South Africa you did obstetrics in your fourth year as a student and you couldn't be signed off if you haven't done 20 independent deliveries at the time. In your final year, you were, uh, in the intern year, you worked there, uh, uh, it was three months. Our intern year was basically routinized. You, you had to do three months ONG, three months surgery, three months uh, internal medicine and peds. There was not much option in that. Yeah. And in that time you did a lot of exposure. You had to do 25 cesarean sections again to or 40 cesareans I can't remember quite the number to be signed off you do a month in right. intensive anesthetics and stuff like that so when I went to Namibia was my intern year that was the I was basically nowadays you would say a, a PGY1 I guess one or two when yeah. I got the JMO so equivalent okay so I ended up there and my first uh, allocation was uh, an uh, ops and gynae at, in this particular hospital a six-month stint um, and it's a it's a hospital like I said a 400 bed hospital service servicing about half a million people the only theater facilities in the whole area so everything comes there huge workload huge numbers lots of seizures every day in fact in Guinea um, you know uh, I, I did my first hysterectomies there and I did 18 in the six months I've been there you know so it's it's a, two two hysterectomies every Monday every Thursday so, and usually for massively uh, you know Menorrhagia due to fibroids, and the cutoff was in fact, uh, if a lady's uterus was on at least 16 weeks side, she didn't even get on the waiting list. You know, so yeah. now I realize a technically challenging surgery, but at the time that's the only thing I knew because I was trained there, you know, to do it and so on. So, surgically wise, very quickly I think you get you get pretty skilled pretty quick. You know? Yeah, sounds like it. Sounds yeah. like it's a very uh, good uh, experience for learning procedures for and sure. getting your hands on. For sure. So tell tell us uh, tell us all about this uh, story that you recounted to us when we were in theatre at sure. Austin Park many uh, yeah. couple of years back. It's probably my most um, memorable obstetric experience in the thirty years I've done obstetrics. Uh, what happened is I was on call at the night and uh, and there was a curfew at night, so there's no uh, patient, uh, people, or vehicle movement at all. And about one o'clock, the uh, midwife called me uh, to come and see a patient that arrived at the hospital. Turned out she was from Angola. And she was in a labor for about three days, according to her. Nothing happened in two days' time. She decided to, to get some help. So she basically crossed the border illegally, got through the fences at the time. There were some, some minefields there to keep the two factions apart, I guess. 
crossed the minefield and walked about 10 kilometers during the night to, get, to come to the town called Oshakati, where the, uh, where the hospital was based. Um, when I arrived there, she was not having any contractions. She was not shocked. She looked, she looked pretty okay and calm. Um, and I, you know, the, the nurse said she couldn't get a fetal heart. Now remember those days, there was nothing like ultrasound, electronic fetoscopes or whatever. It was a cone type of shape fetoscope <laughs> you put on the <laughs> tummy trying to listen. She couldn't hear anything. She called me. I couldn't hear anything. But most amazingly, when I examined her belly, it was just a weird sort of feeling. I could just sort of feel everything. I could feel the baby. I could feel the small parts, you know, make a detail which I'd never felt before. And I thought, gee, something is wrong. Yeah. I examined her. She had a bit of a, a PV bleed that she reported, not, not, not heavily according to her. Um, and the cervix was three or f- two or three centimeters. It was not, it was not an open cervix at all. Um, and, and no feet a lot and, 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 and they said no, no contractions at that time and she couldn't, she said that the contractions ceased a couple of hours prior and the pain then went as well. So the decision was made to take her to theater and, uh, and, 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 and see what was going, what was wrong. Um, took her to theater and, uh, and, and, uh, and we did the laparotomy. The first thing when I cut through the abdominal wall was the baby was right here in front of me. And I, I couldn't believe my eyes. It was lying in the abdominal cavity, um, and and not alive. Obviously not. Uh, removed the baby, and the and then the cord and the placenta came all with it in in, in one in yep. piece. When I cleaned the, the the cavity, the abdominal cavity out, I've noticed that she had a, a transverse tear in the uterus, and exactly where we do a transverse incision. She basically, she I realized that she tore there. The uterus contracted and expelled the, the placenta as well and, and stopped all bleeding. And she did not bleed much for the when there was relative minimal blood in the in a dominant. So the cavity. uterus had contracted down. The uterus contracted by itself down completely. Just, That's just correct. like yeah. when you deliver in a cesarean section, otherwise, yeah. you know, the same sort of look at the time. I thought, gee, well, luckily she's alive and it's all going good and probably just need to suture this up. But to my surprise then I noticed this orange plastic bubble in the abdominal cavity as well which turned out to be the, the bubble of the, of the urinary catheter. And when I investigated further, I saw this very shiny silver epithelium lying in front of me, which I've never seen before, and realized that's the inside of the bladder. It was the bladder epithelium, and the bladder actually ruptured as well, and mm. across the fundus and sort of down to the right-hand side. And that left me a bit stunned because I've never worked a bladder, I've never seen a bladder in my life, and you know how you manage that, how you suture that up. So. 30 kilometers away from Oshakati was the army base where the army had a surgical team then they looked after all the army casualties. So I rang the, uh, I unscrapped, no mobiles at the time of course, rang the hospital, got the surgeon on call there and I, and I scrapped him what I was, what I found there. And, and what do I do now? And he said, well, you have to suture it up again. And I said, gee, you know, how do you do that? <laughs> and, uh, what material do I use and, and what not? And then he said, well, you have to have, close the bladder in, in three layers. And um, I said, you have to, you know, you leave the catheter in and put a suprapubic in while you're there as well. So for eventually when you think it's all good, 10 days later, to do the clamping and make sure it's functioning okay. Anyway, so it gave me sort of a detailed thing. I made some notes and, um, and then I went to scrap again. Went to theater and scrapped up uh, back to the patient and, and sutured the ladder up. And, um, and it came good and looked pretty okay to me, the third layer. Then did the uterus thing as well. And closed the patient up and... Uh, and she basically went to the ward, we gave her antibiotics, of course, uh, for the next 72 hours, observed her very closely. 
and she made a miraculous recovery, a 100% recovery, and was discharged from us. Ten days later, the bladder clamping thing to make sure it will function. We moved the one, the catheter removed the other one the next day, and she was, she was ready to go. So the departing words through the interpreter, of course, and he speak Portuguese in that part of the world, um, said to her, you know, uh, all good, I think you should be okay. Normal routine, we will, uh, we will sort of follow up in six weeks and see how you go, but of course, from where you come from, and it, uh, I realize that's impossible, you know, so I wish you well and, uh, and all of the best. <laughs> and that was it. And then about six weeks, seven weeks, or whatever, later, I was doing um, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the gynae clinic or the obstetric clinic. And um, the next patient through the door, when they opened the door and walked in, couldn't believe my eyes. Here was this lady standing in front of me, and she's back. And I, first I thought I'm, I'm dreaming or whatnot. And she came back and uh, and and she had a chuck on the knee and, and her arm, a live hen. And I, I, you know, I was mesmerized and I was dumbfounded. I didn't know, couldn't find words actually. And the interpreter said, "What are you doing?" And she and she said. Um, well, I came back all the way because thank you very much. You saved my life. Hmm. And so, and she walked through a minefield. Is that right? And she came back yeah. to that same minefield, and like I said, it still leaves me. Yeah. So, so this this poor woman walked through a minefield three times. Three times. Yeah. And the third time, I just to come back and say thank you. Yeah. And that's, that's not a reward for what you do, and uh, I would like to know what it is. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing story. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so. Um, so uh, I've got a couple of questions yeah, that I was sure. fa- <coughs> fascinating. Why do you think her uterus ruptured? Is, do you think there was something, like she'd never had a caesarean before? Or, never had a caesarean um, before. Or, or surgery or anything as far nothing, as you could tell. So nothing. She was, was it just prolonged labour causing a rupture? It must or? have been prolonged labour, super thin segment, and I think just pretty good contractions. You know, I, yeah. I'm not sure what is the incident of, of, of uterine ruptures in obstructive labour because in the day and age we're living in, people don't, just don't get that far. That's the right. Past. So we, in the past, we don't have uh, women in labour for two or three days, exactly, do we? So, you know, so, so I wonder whether uh, is that something that can happen if you've been in labour that long? Well, well you, I don't if know, you yeah. think that's the thinnest, sec- that's the thinnest part of the uterus going to happen, and if you got something must give, you, know, you yeah. would think that's yeah. the place where it's going to give. You know, it won't give in the fundus. That's pretty unlikely. But definitely no scarring, no past medical history. Uh, she, had, I think it was a third baby, if I remember correctly, something like that. Um, and and the baby itself was not extremely big or something that I could yep. work out at the time why you know what what caused the obstruction but but it was probably could have been a transverse lie could have been everything but like I said the, the the cervix could have closed up after as well but it was only about two three centimeters you know it was like a, a eight centimeter cervix or whatever yeah. so probably I, my guess would be something like a transverse lie would it not dilate the, the lower segment proper anyway thanks for sharing that it's obviously one sure. of the, the sort of uh, um, encounters you have during your career, we all have them with the sort of cases that you never forget and uh, yeah. um, you learn a lot from them. And it's obviously a really um, fascinating case for those of us who've never Super experienced that, yeah. uh, that sort of um, work, those sort of working conditions. And I mean, we've seen, we, you know, there's a different world here. We see, um, only ever see uterine rupture in someone who's had a previous scar usually. Um, That's right. Yeah. But what I found fascinating is the, um, you know, that, you know, we all worry about the catastrophic bleeding, but you, sometimes when someone's uterus ruptures, it doesn't always bleed, does it? That's so correct, that's a fascinating yeah. thing yeah. about uh, this case. Well, uh, um, I think if you if you see, look at when we do a controlled incision as well, there's, there's not a lot of bleed from the if it doesn't yeah. go into the gutters or the arteries or whatever. You know, it's it's all controlled yeah. bleed to a degree, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll finish up there. Thanks again for sharing with such a Thank great story, and um, um, good luck back in Origin. Thanks, Roger. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.obsandguinycritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.